All right, can I let you in on a little secret? <laughs> I feel so bad doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Scott Dalton, my dear friend here, has been sitting on an incredible quote that he found for over a year and a half now. He has nurtured that quote. It's been his precious for a year and a half. He's been waiting for the right moment to teach it, the right moment to put it into a writing project, the right moment for the right preaching, the right moment. It has been his precious, and I'm here to tell you today that I'm stealing it. <laughs> With his permission. Uh, so it ends today, his long... I don't want to call it a love affair, but it's something with this quote ends today. The quote's from a guy named Tom Robbins. He's dialoguing, dialoguing with himself. It's kind of a weird quote. It took a long time for us to even figure it out. What's he doing? Because he's interacting with himself. He interjects himself into the story of the book that he wrote. So here it goes. It's the book called still, The Still Life of a Woodpecker. I have no idea what that means. Albert Camus wrote that only the serious question is whether to kill yourself or not. That's pretty serious. Tom Robbins, this guy, wrote that the only serious question is whether time has a beginning and an end. Camus clearly got up on the wrong side of the bed, and Robbins must have forgot to set the alarm. There is only one serious question, and it is this. Who knows how to make love stay? Answer me that, and I will tell you whether to kill yourself or not. Who knows? Who knows how to make love stay? Answer me that. And I'll tell you whether to kill yourself or not. Welcome. Back to Romans. We're in chapter 13. We're going to be looking at 8 through 14. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. <clears throat> but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you shine on the page? We acknowledge that you say the unfolding of your words gives light. Would you give light? Would you give what we cannot generate in ourselves? So we desperately need you. We thank you that in the preached word, in the good news, you actually reach us. You actually renew us. You actually put us back together. So would you do so now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so who knows how to make love stay? Answer me that, and I will tell you whether to kill yourself or not. 
Voltaire was a famous French Enlightenment writer, historian, and philosopher in the 1700s. He wrote over 2,000 books. This is what he said. We are tormented atoms in a bed of mud. That's descriptive, right? In other words, we're an accident. You're an accident. You're an accident of naturalism, of evolutionary naturalism, of the survival of the fittest, of the strong devouring the weak. You are a tormented bunch of atoms in a bed of mud. If we're an accident, then there's no difference between you and a rock, right? You got you, a bunch of atoms. You got a rock over here, a bunch of atoms, and you're, we're both a bunch of atoms. There's no difference. Even if you feel differently, even if you feel like, but I, I feel like I'm different than a rock, there's no basis for that. Because still, at the end of the day, the bottom line is we're just a tormented bunch of atoms in a bed of mud. We're an accident, right? One theologian put it this way, what's the difference between you and a rock? The rock is not tormented, you are. Wow. Then he goes on to say this, why? Because for some reason, some accident, you have developed one of the most inconvenient faculties that a being has developed. It's called the soul, consciousness. But it was still just an accident. So unfortunately, you actually can self-reflect and think about yourself and about the world and about life, whereas a rock doesn't, so you're tormented. Who knows how to make love stay? If you're an accident, then love is also an accident. It means we can't make love stay. It means that love is a set of chemical reactions that may or may not happen. It means that it's a bunch of random atoms that collide or may or may not collide, and when they collide, they may or may not make something or become something. Perhaps this is why Voltaire wrote at the end of his life this, I have lived 80 years of life and know nothing for it but to be resigned and to tell myself that flies are born to be eaten by spiders and man to be devoured by his sorrow. And then he went on to write about two characters. I think this is probably where I wrote this. He had wrote this story called Candid, and in this he has this dialogue between Candid and Martin. You're a bitter man, said Candid. That's because I've lived, said Martin. Naturalism tries to suppress what you and I know deep, deep down in our bones like it's in our blood. We know. We know there's something else we were made for. We know that we run on love. We know we want to know how to make love stay. And we know that love is actually tied to the meaning of life. And we know that without it, there is no meaning. In Romans 13, 8 through 14, Paul says we run on love. In other words, you and I work best on love. In 13, 8 through 14, he lays out another aspect of the gospel life, because that's what we're doing in 12 through 16. He picks up the topic of love again. Do you see that? Remember, we looked at the topic of love in 12. We saw that in 12, 9 through 21. But now he stretches it beyond the near context of relationships community, and he stretches love into the context of the way the world works, the way you and I work. And he basically says in this passage, he says, the world works on love. You and I were made for love. We run on love. So to be a human being, to live a meaningful life, is to live a life of love. 
Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owing no one to anything connects succession to the session we looked at last week, or which is on the state, or two weeks ago on the state. And there we saw that we need to submit to the state intelligently. Give the state what it's due, it's owed, it's taxes, it's revenue, it's honor, it's respect. But now in the first port part, it's anticipating doing good so well that you actually re-enchant the whole world. In this passage, he's saying, look, we're going to do good so well, not only to the state, but to everything and every place so well that we start healing the whole world. That we make a difference in the whole world. In other words, we're going to pay all debts. We're going to owe, as it says in verse 8, no one anything. We're going to do good. We're going to pay debts. We're going to heal the world that we actually participate in being a part of God at work in the world and putting it back together again. At the end of verse 8, Paul is envisioning a group of people that actually get the gospel to such an extent that they live a gospel life where they are, in their relationships, in relation to the state, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, and in their city, and that they're doing it as strugglers and messy people, but they're doing it to such an extent that no one is owed anything, which means everyone is being filled, honored, respected, loved, cherished, dignity and respect and justice. In other words, in verse 8, debts are paid. But then he says something absolutely shocking, except for one. There's one debt that will never, ever be paid. There's a never-ending debt, Paul says. There's a never-ending re-enchantment. And it's there in the morning when you wake up, and it's there when you go to bed in the evening. It's there when you're hurt, and it's there when you're stressed, and it's there when you're exhausted, and it's there when you're at home, and it's there when you're at work, and it's there when you're in the church, and it's there when you're serving and leading, and it's there when you're following and watching. It's the never-ending debt that Paul calls the debt of love. We can never say to anyone... I've loved you enough. So husbands and wives, uh, we can never say in our hearts and we can never say to each other, honey, I've loved you enough. Teachers and students, employers and employees, parents and friends and children, strangers and friends, Blacks and whites, reds and yellows, conservatives and liberals, Texans and Russians. We can never say in our hearts and to someone else, I've loved you enough. Redeemer, we can never say to one another, and we can never say to our children, our graduates, we can never say to our leaders, we can never say to the community, we can never say to the 
socially outcast, the messy sins that people abandon those folks. We can never say to unbelieving skeptics, we can never say to the city of Waco, in our hearts or to them, to their face, we have loved you enough. Why? Why can we never say that? Look at Romans 13, 8 again. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Isn't that interesting? Oh, this is breathtaking, y'all. The Ten Commandments, you know what the Ten Commandments do? They lay out what a human being looks like. Okay, what does, a, what does a human being look like? What does a human being do? How do you act humanely? What is that? And the Bible says it's right there in the Ten Commandments. What is an image bearer? It's there in the Ten Commandments. What does an image bearer do and look like? It's there in the Ten Commandments. So Paul is saying God made us. Paul is saying that in your blood, you've been designed and you've been formed to love one another. The way we work is to love. We run on love. A meaningful life is a loving life is what Paul is saying in that verse. To not love is to stop being human. To not love is to actually break down as a human being. To not love is to disintegrate and fall to pieces inch by inch, personally, spiritually, psychologically, relationally, materially, physically. It's to be undone. So in verse 9 and 10, Paul lists some specific commandments, and his point is very, very simple, but it's very, very powerful. The Ten Commandments are not just a bunch of rules. The Ten Commandments are what love looks like. The Ten Commandments are not just a bunch of guidelines and family values and uh, ethics. The Ten Commandments are what a human being is. And a human being, according to God, has been put in their blood and formed and shaped to love. So if we truly want to love someone, I mean, let's look at verses 9. He lists some of the specifics, 9 and 10. If we truly want to love someone, we will not sexually sin against them. That's what, verse, that's what adultery means in verse 9. You know what the literal translation is? It means that it, it's talking about the marriage bed. And it has the picture of the marriage bed. And that, that marriage bed is the place of excitement. <laughs> that marriage bed is the place for the deepest intimacy, the union of man and woman. The deepest expressions and the deepest pushing in realities of love, right, of one another. And so what the text is saying is that that's where it's supposed to be. Don't take this fire out of that fireplace and put it in the living room or in the attic or out in the shed. And if we truly want to love someone, then we won't diminish them. That's what verse 9 means, murder. And that goes everything ranging from being angry and wrathful and hatred to not forgiving them, on down to abuse and actual literal murder. 
If we truly love someone, we won't steal from them. And that's what's going on in verse 9-2 about stealing from others. That means their dignity, and that means their well-being, and that means their stuff. That also means their time. That also means their emotional, relational energy. And if we truly love someone, we won't crave the life of another person. That's what's going on in verse 9 with covet. We won't crave their stuff. We won't crave their abilities, their accomplishments, their affirmation, their recognition, their attention. Positively stated in verse 9, what's happening here, love loves so reflexively, so naturally, so instinctively that it, it loves others like we love ourselves. That's what that is saying in verse 9. So we instinctively love ourselves. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this, that, that even the person who takes his own life is loving himself. Self-hatred is still self-love. It's just loving ourselves too much, right? Now, all of us know here, we look at this text and we're hearing this stuff, and everyone in this room knows that we love ourselves too much. Everyone in this room knows we struggle to love like this. We look, we hear this. We know that we are made to run on love. We know that we are designed in our blood and our form to love one another. We know that, and yet we struggle to do that. We struggle to get outside of ourselves. We struggle to forget ourselves. We struggle to be lazy in our relationships. We struggle to even care. We struggle to have empathy. We struggle to not steal. We struggle to not commit adultery. We struggle on all these levels. And the question is, why do we? What does the text show us, this particular passage, when it's saying, listen, this is how we're made, this is how the world works, this is how you re-enchant the world, this is how you heal the world. If everyone was to actually run on love, to actually fulfill their purpose, to actually be a part of God's work in the world, if we were to do that, we'd re-enchant the world. But why don't we? What does this passage say? Did you see it when you were looking through it? It's kind of strange. It's hidden. It's actually, it took me a long time to figure it out. I think it took me till yesterday to figure it out. That's how concealed it is. It's not sitting on the surface of the text. I wish it was. Or I wish I could just come in here and say the general, oh, it's because we're a sinner. Oh, yeah, okay, move on. But how do we, why do we? Why do we struggle with love? You know what the text says? This is going to blow you away. Paul's stunning answer is this. We are asleep. Jeff, you know why you don't love? This is Paul. This is me. You know why you don't love? You're asleep. You're zonked out. Verse 11, besides the... Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. But notice this. It's like we have our days and our nights all mixed up. We're asleep when we should be awake, Paul says. We've got our nights and we've got our days so confused and so mixed up that we don't know what's night anymore. We don't know what's day anymore. And it's such a jumble of dysfunction in us internally. <laughs> spiritually, uh, in our inner person, in the way we express it in the world, we're so mixed up, we don't know we should be awake. 
Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. What in the world is Paul talking about? He gives an image, right? He gives a metaphor. He gives a picture. He's trying to draw us in. He's trying to say, listen, you've got your nights and days all confused. You think it's night, so you're asleep. But it's the day. The day has come. The day is here. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, look, the dark night of only loving yourself is over. The dark night of self-absorption is over. It's not only over, Paul says, it's far gone. Far, far gone. The day is here. Jesus has come. You see, Jesus entered the dark night, stepped right into it, and then he summoned it to himself. I summon the night. And he summoned it to himself on the cross. And then out of the night, he calls, let there be light. And there was. And the day is here. Who knows how to make love stay? Answer me that, and I will tell you whether to kill yourself or not. All Jesus had to do to end his own night, the eternal agony of the night that he summoned all around him on the cross, all he had to do was walk away. But he stayed. Love stayed. Who knows how to make love stay? Jesus knows how to make love stay. And this is the love you and I are looking for. This is the love every human being is looking for. This is the love that heals us. This is the love that takes all of our darkness, that takes all of our self-absorption, that takes all of our self-love, it takes all of our inordinate passions and desires that revolve and center around us, and he destroyed it, he absorbed it, he, he took it away and, and declared light on the cross. This is the love that fuels us. This is the love that we were made to run on. We were made to run on his love. And when we have his love, it actually fuels us to love others. In other words, it goes like this. A great experience or a deepening experience or an experience of his love is the fuel that empowers us to love others. So if we have little experience of his love, we have little power to love others. Do you see how this works? Paul is tying it all together. The love, who knows how to make love stay? Jesus stayed. It's the only love that stays, and it's the love that you were made for. And when we do have that love and experience that love, we love well. There was a point in time in the early part of the church where there was this, this one particular couple, and they were just mean. I don't know how to say it. Just mean. Just mean. 
Everything from when I would look at them, when I would talk, there were scowls on their face. There was never anything positive, never anything good. Everything was criticism. Everything was a downer. Everything was, it'll never work. Everything. We didn't know. Reformed church will never make it. Everything was that. And I had this dear friend that came up to me and he said, I was like, I was pulling my hair out. I was like, I'm going to kill him, right? Break all the commandments right there. Love them to death right there, right? And he says to me, Jeff, he goes, how uncomforted must they be? How unloved must they be to be like that? Jesus loves you much. And it's his love you're made for. And when you connect to that, you love well. Your heart is filled. You run on the way you were meant to run. It's in your blood. You re-enchant the world because you just were re-enchanted yourself. And that's what Paul is doing. He's basically saying the day is at hand. He's saying, wake up to your salvation. It's time to get up. It's time to get up is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the, the night's far gone. Why are you living like you're in the night? The day's at hand. The day's here. Wake up to your salvation. Wake up to the love that loves you like that. Wake up to the love that stayed for you. In other words, put on the armor of light, verse 12. Walk properly as in the daytime, verse 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14. And it's interesting that when we do put on the armor of light, when we do walk in the day that he made, when we do experience and connect deeply with the love that stayed and wake up to it, you know what we end up doing? We end up breaking off our relationship with all our false lovers. That's the power that enables us to walk away from things, things like verse 12, cast off the works of darkness. Isn't that an interesting choice of words though? Works of darkness. Who would talk like that unless the works of darkness are actually a self-salvation strategy or a form of work salvation or a way that we try to save ourselves or a substitute savior. In other words, a false lover. And Paul is saying, cast them off. Break off your relationship with your false lovers. But the only way you and I are going to break up our relationships with our false lovers is if we wake up to the true one. The night is far gone. The day has come. Walk properly in the daytime, not excessive drinking parties whose only goal is drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Verse 13, break it off. Verse 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Break it off. One more Voltaire quote, okay? I'm sorry I picked on him this morning, but some people need to be picked on. We never live, he says. We only live with the expectation of living. Isn't that interesting? We never live. We're always living with some expectation of living. You know what God writes? The day to live is here. Jesus stayed for you. There is a love that stayed. It's time to live 
It's time to wake up and love. Amen.